see you all here. I'm glad to be here myself. And um, before I mention what's going on, kind of give you an update as to what's going on with me. Um, I was passed on the note. Some of you might have known from last night, uh, Cindy Dilworth mentioned on Facebook that her mom had a heart attack and was at St. Thomas, was sent to St. Thomas um, Midtown. And then she'll be taking tests tomorrow to see um, you know, what's going on. So they're going to evaluate her. So please keep Cindy and her mom in your prayers. Um, so whatever's going on with my body, I, I don't know. I, I'm told that it's not anything in my tract from one end to the other, so to speak. Um, they did all those tests. Everything is good, so it's not going to be ulcers or heartburn or acid reflux or anything like that. It's all clean, they said. Um, they're looking at the gallbladder, and so as a result, they're, doing, they're checking for gallstones tomorrow with an ultrasound. And then also, if that's not the issue... I'm hoping that the next step is the gallbladder function test. If that's not the issue, I'm told it's stress. If it's stress, now, okay, I got to qualify what I'm about to say so everyone is on the same page and that I don't get all conversations with the elders about Mitch Davis. The joke is preachers work three hours a week. So if I need a sabbatical, they're telling me maybe one hour a week <laughs> so, <laughs> to, do, to get all the stress out. <laughs> I don't know. I'm hoping it's not stress. <laughs> but anyway, if that's, if that's the case, then we'll work on that as well. Anyway, we are here this morning. We're talking about this title, and this title is known as the Incarnation and Deity of Christ. Now, for a number of us, no big deal. You understand it, and we move forward. But this is a huge issue in our modern world. There are people who are denying God's existence, or there are people who are denying that God can come and be dwelling as man, right? God becoming a man. That's the incarnation aspect of deity. And so the goal of the sermon this morning is not to prove the deity of Christ. And the reason why that's not the goal is because that's not the Bible's goal. The Bible is never designed to prove the deity of Christ. It simply states it, right? So we're looking at the simultaneous humanity and divinity of Jesus. That's what we're talking about. And then with that, what we are seeing is that when you read the scriptures... The scriptures make it absolutely clear that it's simply unfolding the story of this message that God became man. And you're going to see the significance of it toward the end. But that's, if you can kind of make it really, really simple to understand, that's what we're looking at, God becoming man. Now, when we read the scriptures, just as uh, Ron had read for us in John 1, right? in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among men. We're going to read these passages. And I want you to just go on a little bit further in John chapter 1. And then read with me again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 80. Maybe 6 through 8. And then we'll get to see the picture that is given as far as this is concerned. So John chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 15. Thanks to Jesse, I got my 
eyes on now, so thanks, Jesse. All right, John chapter 1, read with me in these verses after what was said by the apostle John. Here's what he continues to say after Jesus becomes flesh and dwells among us. In verse 15, John bore witness about him, about this word that became flesh and dwelt among us, the one that, that brings life and the life is in the, the light of men. That's what he's witnessing to. So John the Baptist, or let me rephrase this, John the Apostle is writing about John the Baptist being witness to Jesus, known as the word, known as the light, the one who came flesh. And he says in verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, speaking of Jesus, has made him, speaking of God, known. So that's the picture. That's the story of the gospel as far as John is concerned. And that's what we're looking at, the incarnation of deity. Now, as we look at Philippians chapter 2, Paul says something very similar in that he reiterates in a very much more succinct way what the Apostle John was saying. And again, it's a passage we're familiar with because I know Ron loves this passage. And notice this passage. It starts off with, have this mind which, um, in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he deals with who Jesus is. So in verse 6, he says, in, uh, let's see if I can get over here. Let me back up to verse, uh, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form... I am having a hard time with these readers. <laughs> That's what I mean. Let me see if I can get this. Might have to go and get Paul's readers again. Let's see. Here we go. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's the story. God coming in the form of man, but of course, referring to Jesus Christ doing this. Now, if we can just take the time to summarize this and see the significance, I'm hoping it'll help you when, when others come to you and ask you about your faith and your belief, and you mention them your belief that Jesus is the Christ, and they, they mention how is that even possible. Or you might have conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses who will look at John chapter 1, verse 1, based upon the New World Translation, which is a translation made by Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and they'll, they'll admit in, in a sense to that, you can have this conversation of how it's possible that God can be dwelling in the form of flesh. How God can be himself and yet separate from himself. So we're going to slow it down from here in this summary, and I want to focus on another word. One word that we are so familiar with, we use it every single day, and yet I don't know if we fully grasp its meaning. So let's start off by looking at the beginning. So in the beginning, right, Genesis chapter 1, 
When you, when you read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, I want you to open your Bibles to that passage. And I want us to read this word that's going to help us, I think, to understand the concept of the word known as God. Okay? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 tells us, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. Now, here's where we slow it really down. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. If we take the word Adam, Adam is the Hebrew word for man. Some of us in this room only think of Adam as Adam, the guy. But the word used for Adam in Hebrew, the word Adam, can be used singularly as one person or in plural fashion as two. Everyone understands that? Simple enough, right? You can refer to a man, a man, singular, or you can refer to mankind, plural. But the Hebrew word is just the word Adam. And what you get is context that tells you whether it's plural or singular. Okay? Now, the reason why I share that with you is because oftentimes we look at the word Adam and go, we think it's singular. But as verse 27 is saying of this text, God created man, Adam, in his image. How does God reveal what man or mankind or human or humankind as? Both singular and plural. He created man in the image of God, right? In the image of God, he created him, singular. And he says the same thing all over again, in a sense. Female, or male and female, he created them. So imagine you're trying to talk to someone who's never understood the word man or mankind before, ever. It's like you're talking to some alien being, and you're trying to give them the concept of what man is like. And in their mind, they're thinking, oh, man, singular. Okay, so the, the, whoever this person is, they're thinking, oh, man. And you're explaining man as two different kinds of people, like a, a male man and a female man, or male mankind, female mankind. Well, which is it? Make up your mind. What, what's man? Is it man singular or is man plural? Do you know where I'm going with this? Go back to the word Elohim. Genesis 1, verse 1. Look at the text here. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, who creates the heavens and the earth? God. The word there, get all your Bible lexicons out now if you want. The word there, like Adam in verse 26 and 27, is Elohim. Elohim is the word that is translated as God. It is the same exact word that is translated as gods. So anytime you have the heem ending in Hebrew, it's plural. Elohim, right? So what you have is, if you're going to get real literal, in the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. But that doesn't sound right. 
right? Gods did not create the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. Think about it. God made man. Is it male? Or is it male or female? Is it both? Or is it one? I mean, plural, singular. Similar fashion. Deity. We're talking about spiritual being. A spiritual beginning, or a spiritual being in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. That's what the word Elohim literally means, a spiritual being. Okay? But this is a specific spiritual being that created a kind of fleshly being. And this kind of fleshly being, he calls it man. But this man can be a singular individual or representative of all kinds of, look at all the human beings in here, all kinds of Adam in this room, male and female. Okay? So just as we have difficulty trying to explain what the word God is, no more difficult than explaining the word human. Same concept. One is celestial, one is terrestrial. One is heavenly, spiritual, one is earthly or fleshly. Okay? That's all there is to this. Doesn't have to be more difficult than that. Now, it is much more difficult from a standpoint that we're talking about God, complex spiritual being. But to make it real simple for us, he's a spiritual being creating an earthly being. Okay? Now, with that background in mind, let's go on to the story itself. So God makes man, and when he makes man in his image, it is so that man can share in this dominion, because God tells man, as we read already in verse 26 and 27, have dominion over all this creation. Well, guess what? Doesn't God have dominion over all that he created? Yeah, absolutely. And God now is making man in his image to have dominion over all this creation on earth. That's the picture so far that we get in Genesis 1. And without going into any more detail, it's a very succinct type of uh, understanding. God made man in his image to have dominion. Okay? Now, we go on in the Bible story in Genesis chapter 3, and man sins. Okay? So with all the stuff, there's, it's so dense, full of information going on, but the bottom line is man sins. And when man sins, interestingly enough, instead of having dominion over that serpent, he succumbs to that serpent or the beast of the field, right? Genesis 3. And in so doing, he loses the right, if you will, the opportunity to stay in that garden area and have that communion with God, God drives him out of the garden, it says in the passage. Drives him out. And now, what does the rest of the story teach us? Well, you go from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you get this picture, this story that's here that we're talking about. And then you see that story unfold all over again in Genesis chapter 5. And what do you have? A driving out, in a sense, called the flood. And God starts everything all over again in Genesis chapter 9, has the covenant with the rainbow. In Genesis chapter 10, mankind is repopulating the earth once again. And guess what we have all over again? This is a cyclical story. And so the picture is, in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, is God makes man, provides man a quote-unquote, if I can be very simplistic, perfect environment, and man messes it up. Genesis 3 messes it up. Genesis 5 messes it up. Uh, Genesis uh, 11 messes it up. And every time, 
man messes it up. So, what does it tell you? We're, we're kind of messed up people. That's what, that's what you get, right, in the first few chapters. And so Genesis 12 comes in with the story. And maybe there's this guy that puts on this picture of this kind of a man that we're supposed to be like in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. His name is Abraham. And what you actually read of Abraham's life is he gets into some pretty hairy situations. And for lack of a better way of explaining it, from, in fact, from our modern moralistic vantage point, we look at Abraham going, oh, he lied, right? He goes to Abimelech. He goes to Pharaoh. Oh, this is my sister. No, not. It's your wife. That's a bold lie. He goes through all these tests and fails them. The last test he has, after all these years that he's lived, when his son Isaac has been born, as far as the scripture gives us as tests in his life, is when he's told to take his only son and sacrifice him. And he passed that test. Beautiful, beautiful picture of faith. Amazing, amazing picture of faith. But you look at the total picture of Abraham's life. He is the father of our faith, we are told in Galatians, right? Chapter 3 in particular. But yet, is his life exactly the way God had intended it? I mean, when he says, hey, wife, let's, uh, or no, when his wife says to him, let's take our hand, my handmaiden, I want you to have a child through her, is that like faith in God? I hope you say no, because it's not. Ishmael was born as a result of the flesh, of his own will, not the will of God, right? And so what you get is, ah, Abraham is not that guy. He's a great man of faith, right? That's the overall picture of him at the end, but he's not that guy that God made in Genesis chapter 1. That's not the picture. We go on to other individuals, a number of them throughout the, what we call the old patriarchal uh, era, and none of them fits the picture. You come to a point in the Old Testament scriptures where you go, ah, oh, Moses, Moses, righteous man, humble man. Uh, until you read a little bit of Moses' life, he killed somebody, right? Killed the Egyptian, right? When he's with the Israelites and God is telling him, now you honor me, Moses, strikes the rock, right? Ah, oh. He's not allowed to enter the land of promise. Great, great person. This is a man who would dwell or commune with God in the, the tabernacle. He would come out or go up to the mountain and God would give him commandments and he comes back shining full of the glory of God on him. But he's not the man. Go through all the Old Testament scriptures and you come across to another person, David, who the scripture says is a man after God's own heart. All the Psalms that we can read of, are beautiful pictures of the kind of man we are supposed to be in the presence of God. But is he the man? Well, most of us would say, of course not. You know what he did with Bathsheba? <laughs> He's a man that doesn't fit the picture. There are other issues with David, but that's one of them. Well, how about when we get to Daniel? See, now, this is the first time in all of Scripture, and do your reading, you will not find one thing said against Daniel. Not one. When you read the book of Daniel, or you read any other Old Testament book that refers back to Daniel, you get a righteous individual. And I believe that was intentional in the writing of, of the book. 
that this could, could this be this human that we're supposed to be like? But interestingly enough, in Daniel's um, book, you actually have a picture of another individual. And what the Jews would do as they're reading this, this literature, they would go and reflect, well, is Daniel that individual? Does he represent that individual? But the way this picture is, this individual, this human, is coming in the future. So it can't be Daniel. And of course, as we would know, what do we know of all men so far? All sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we know. The fact is, as godly as Daniel is in Scripture, I'm sure if, if the authors wanted to, they could have found, hey, Daniel sinned on this day, he did this and that, or whatever. You can find some fault in an individual, right? And so now, what is this picture pointing toward? And what we have is that when we read all of the Scriptures, we're all found guilty. Every single one of us. Everyone. So the question that we're supposed to have as human beings are, if we are not the kind of people that God made in his image, that we all go astray, every single one of us, then how is it possible for us to have this relationship with God after he's driven us out of the garden? How is it possible that we can have this passage in Genesis chapter 3 that talks about us failing and yet later on there's going to be a time in which this enemy that brought man down and kicked man out of the garden can be overcome, right? Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, following. When you talk about this picture, right? In fact, if you go to Genesis 3, I want you to look, read this text. This is a text that is obscure and yet very hopeful. Verse 15 of Genesis 3, God says to the serpent who he has cursed, I will put enmity between you, that serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, the serpent's offspring, and, the, and her offspring. So Eden's offspring, and Eden represents life, because that's what her name really means, Eden, right? Uh, beautiful life. Then you have um, serpent, who is death. And what he says is, he, the serpent, shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. This is the offspring of the woman. So there is supposed to be this obscure passage that's going to talk about some kind of a future overcoming of evil. All right? But none of these individuals down here fit the bill. They might resist evil, right? Daniel resists evil on a number of occasions when you read of him and his fasting, and even, even if it meant losing his life or his friends and going into uh, the, the den or going into the fire, and they come out on the other side. There's so much in there. But while they might resist evil, they did not overcome evil. And so the story continues to unfold in the Old Testament scriptures with regard to this new picture that we're talking about and this new picture is of this man that's going to come and going to overcome this evil this man is going to be what god had in mind when he created man in his image right but what we get is no man up until that point fulfilled that role no adam no human so if we go further 
it's around this time in Old Testament writings that you get this word now called Messiah. You won't see it in the earlier passage of Scripture, but particularly like in Daniel's time and on, around the time of captivity, you start getting this picture known as the Messiah, right? Messiah simply means anointed one, right? In the, the Hebrew, Messiah, anointed one, is the equivalent that you have now when you re read your New Testaments. In the Greek, it's known as Christ, same word. Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, same thing, the anointed one. Well, what do the scriptures say about the anointed one? Look at Daniel. Since we're talking about Daniel, could he be that anointed one? Well, let's find out. Daniel chapter 9, I want to read. And I want you to read with me these passages because I want you to see how important these, in fact, particularly in chapter 7, when we get to chapter 7, this is like the pinnacle and I said this in our Bible study when we were studying the book of Daniel. This is like the pinnacle point in Old Testament history pointing toward someone that's going to overcome this evil and allow all the people of God to actually live in his presence. Okay? So Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Daniel has this vision, this dream, and he's trying to understand it, so on and so forth. But notice what is said here. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is like the picture of Genesis 1. To seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. So there's going to, to be a holy place that will be anointed. Okay, so now we've got a place. What about a person? Now, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with square and moat, but in a troubled time. So whatever all this vague symbolism is about, there's going to be an anointed one and an anointed place. That's the picture of the Messiah. That's what it means, anointed one, Messiah. Go back a couple of chapters in chapter 7, and we get a different vision that ties these two thoughts together that brings us forward to this picture, what man can fulfill the role that we see in Genesis chapter 1. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So in the, the 12 verses prior... Daniel has this vision, his dream. He's been interpreting everyone else's dreams, right, by God. But now he has his own dream, and he's not able to interpret it. But in this dream, here's this vision that is given to him. And he says this in verse 13. I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of Adam. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him... And to him, to this Adam, the son of Adam, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. This is like Genesis 1 all over again. Excuse me. Genesis 1 all over again, right? To have dominion over all creation and things. Here's this picture given. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's going to be anointed holy one with an anointed holy place. 
But let's back up again. So in this vision, in the first 12 verses, Daniel has this vision and he sees um, multiple thrones in the heavenly realm, in the celestial realm, multiple thrones. And then there's one who is known as the Ancient of Days. Thank you, uh, Ray, wherever Ray you are, where, I don't know where he is for the songs that you led this morning um, about that concept. And, and you have on the Ancient of Days this picture where he sits on one of those thrones. But there are multiple thrones. And then you have all these other heavenly hosts. And they're all together. And Daniel's looking at this. And in the midst of this picture of, the, of these thrones and then of one sitting on thrones, of course, we don't know how many there are. We just know there's more than one. The picture is there's this one known as a son of man. And what is he doing? He's riding on a cloud. Which direction is he going? He's coming from earth up into the heavenly place. That's the picture. It's a picture of a human. That's why he's known as the son of man. The phrase son of man is nothing more um, than simply stating he is a classification of human being, right? Sons of anarchy. Sons of the confederates. Doesn't... doesn't mean you have to actually be an actual literal, hey, Mitch has a son, now he's a son. He could be the next generation, next generation, and just be people that belong to that group that support this cause, right? Sons of the prophets. So classification. Here is a, the son of, a, of Adam, son of a human. That's what we have in this picture. This is the coming Messiah, the coming anointed one, the coming Christ. And this one receives all glory, all dominion. He brings in righteousness. He actually fulfills the picture of Genesis chapter 1. So, around this time, going into the first century, many of the Jews really began studying what we know as the Old Testament passages, looking for the coming one. And that's why when John opens his gospel, remember he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And in verse 5, he continues on. He says, now, there was a guy named John the Baptist. He was not that coming one. John the Baptist is witness to that coming one. And then he refers back to the coming one in verse 14 and tells everyone that this coming one came in the likeness of man. He came, the word became flesh and dwelt among men. This is the one full of grace and truth. This is the one that if you believe on him, verse 12 of John 1, you'll have everlasting life. And that's the picture that the rest of the scriptures answers. So enter Jesus. Jesus is born of a woman, right? We read that in Matthew chapter 1, 2, and 3. We read the first three chapters and we get the picture of this child being born, Emmanuel, chapter 1. God is with us is is the name Emmanuel. And we see his life, right? So all the gospels go into this. The question is, can this one who is born of a woman, seed of a woman, can he also be God? How is that possible? That breaks all the rules of our minds. So how is it possible? And here's where the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament simply reveal how this human being had divine-like abilities. And shows his divine-like abilities. So, in John's opening of his words, he says, In the beginning 
was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Sounds just like Genesis chapter 1. He's riffing off of Genesis 1 on purpose. Because in the beginning, what does God do? He creates. Well, we just read, as um, Ron read for us, nothing that was created was created without Him, without this Word becoming flesh. So this Word is with God, and yet this Word is not with God. He is God. How can one be separate and at the same time, simultaneously, be God, yet separate from God? Right? That's the picture. And he's saying, hey, this is God. You have to look at him from a different plane of view. Your plane of view is from a human standpoint. It's either like I'm looking at Lisa and her husband, Mark, and, and they're two, but yet Scripture says they're one. They're married. They're one flesh. How is that possible? Right? And we're having to look at things from a different perspective to see that Jesus, who is God, is separate from God. Right? So we have to take it for what it's saying, and until our minds can understand that concept, that's what we're seeing here. Right? He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but took on or made himself of no reputation, took on the form of flesh. So that's what the scriptures are telling us. So the word becomes flesh, right? And the fulfillment of Genesis 3 takes place. The seed of woman has come. Is this the one? Nathaniel says, is this the Christ? Or is Peter and Andrew, could this be the Christ? Or many of others going, we believe him to be the Christ. Right? Scripture tells us, Paul does in Colossians 2, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I don't know why I put Genesis 1. To, oh yeah, Colossians 1, verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. This should make you think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We're made in his image. Jesus is the express image, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. So all these passages are going back to Genesis, the image of God, and here is this ideal or true picture of what man should be. Be. Okay? So as we go further in, in this summary and understand what is this man doing? How is this man living? And I'm not I'm only gonna deal with a couple of aspects here, but there's gonna be a multitude, a multifaceted way of looking at Jesus as the Son of Man. Alright? So Jesus says to his disciples one day, he says, Who do men say that I am? Matthew 16. And they're like, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. You know. Who do you say I am, Jesus then asks. Peter answers and says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. One thing Jesus never did, he never referred to himself as the Christ. He never, ever refers to himself as the Messiah. He might acknowledge if someone calls him the Christ, like Peter, or... It could be where, like Pilate says, well, are you, um, you know, the king of the Jews, as you say? You know, he, just, he acknowledges what others say about him. We'll get to what Jesus says about himself, but notice what others are talking about him. They're referring to him as, I mean, some of them are referring to him as a, um, the Christ. When Jesus says, who do you say the son of man is? Who do you say this human being is? The anointed one is the answer that they give. Go further on. Um, particularly in Mark chapter 2, 
when you um, look at the whole chapter of Mark, we were talking about the Sabbath this morning. The entire chapter of Mark 2 is dealing with the Sabbath issues, right? And so one of the situations is there, um, Jesus is in a room, all these people. I mean, it's really crowded. And so these people are wanting to heal or have Jesus heal this man who's paralyzed. And they let him down the roof and everything. And, of course, what does Jesus do? Compassionately heals him. Multiple things going on. Among them, one of them is this. Which is easier? To heal him or to say your sins are forgiven? That you may know who the Son of God is. He says, take up your bed, arise. But he, earlier, you know what he said? Your sins are forgiven. And they're questioning, how is it that this human being can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And that's the point. This human being, this son of man, was able to forgive sins. And so he says, your sins are forgiven. That you may know who the son of man is. That the son of man has authority in heaven and on earth. That's the picture of Genesis 1. But I said there's multiple layers. There's multifaceted layers going on. Think about this. How did Jesus treat this man? How did he treat every other person? Remember the woman caught in adultery that we talk about? Caught in the very act. And he wants others to get this very thought that he has for this woman. What does, when he came into this world, what does God, who is in flesh now, we call him Jesus, the Messiah, what does he want to teach us, let alone do for us? He wants to teach us how to be truly human. Truly Adam, as God intended in Genesis 1. What do we do? We sin, we have hatred. Sometimes, even if we don't murder, what well, we have thoughts of hatred, right? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Re-understand re what was intended, if you will, with the laws. And what you get is, it's not just that you didn't kill somebody that you're like, all right, with God. Where's your heart at? You have murderous thoughts against another person? Every bit is bad. Just like Cain. Cain went from the murderous thoughts to actually taking his life, the brother's life. He wants us to go the opposite route. To make life, to create, to have dominion over things. Not to destroy. And so there's that picture of this son of man who not only forgave sins, he healed someone. He created life or he restored life. He did that which was good and righteous and kind, very loving. But there's another picture given in Scripture about the Son of Man. Matthew 26 is a reference back to that passage we were reading in Daniel 7 about the cloud rider. And if you know anything about the cloud rider, you guys do your own historical studies. Cloud rider was a picture of the Baal, um, Baal right? The Babylonian gods. This Babylonian god was known as the cloud rider. Well, here are the Jews, and the Jews are referring to this cloud rider, but this cloud rider is a human going up to the Ancient of Days. That's weird. Jesus comes along, and in Matthew 26, verse 64, notice what he says about this cloud rider. And of course, this is a very important aspect of looking at the Son of Man. I want you to turn to the passage 
here. And there's much more. Again, we, there's just so much to this. We're trying to, trying to summarize this picture, but I want you to get the, a storyline at least. So in verse 64, let's see. Jesus said to, um, to the priest, I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you see Daniel in reverse? Instead of the cloud rider going from earth to heaven, if you will, the picture is that this Son of Man will be seated at the right hand, so he's taking one of those throne seats that was in Daniel 7, and now coming on the clouds of heaven. He'll be coming. He refers to himself as this Son of Man. And the picture is that what you have of this man is this intertwining between divinity and humanity mixed together at the same time. This spirit being, spiritual being, Elohim, if you will, comes in the likeness of Adam, lives among men, rejected by many of them, but received by a number of them. And those who received this Adam, this human being, as the Christ, the anointed one, to them are giving everlasting life. That's the story of the gospel message. So, when you look at this, these texts, right? And of course, we can go into these other passages, Revelation 14, Acts chapter 7, there's some similarities there. You have to ask yourself, what is the significance then of this? You know, why, why is Jesus, who is supposedly God, and yet separate from God, he is a spiritual being who is God and yet separate from God, according to John, what does that have to do with me? And here's, I believe, the significance when we talk about this. In Hebrews chapter 2, among other things that we could be looking at, the picture is that Jesus is the one that gives us salvation. That's why in the very beginning, he says, do not neglect so great a salvation. Because Jesus is the one by which we are saved from our sins because we are not living like Adam that God made in Genesis 1. But this, uh, this God who came in the likeness of Adam, of man, did what we could not do. And here's what he says. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Adam, he himself likewise partook of the same. Speaking of Jesus, he partook of the same, flesh and blood. Now, knowing that Jesus is partaking of flesh and blood, that full or through death, he, Jesus, might render powerless him. Go back to the serpent in Genesis 3. That Powerless, him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There is a significance of Jesus being the incarnate Christ. That he would partake in flesh and blood the ability that through his death he would overcome the evil. Remember, we asked the question, how do kings rule? How do people who are having dominion rule? Well, I do what is good for me. So I'll crush you if it hurts me or my family or my kingdom. 
Jesus crushes by giving up his life. He overcomes evil, and I use the word crush very metaphorically speaking, not literally, right? He overcomes evil by good. That's the only way he did it. No other human has ever done such. And that is what makes him that anointed one who has glory and dominion over all things. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Because what do we do when we are threatened? You learn jiu-jitsu. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> it's not jiu-jitsu. You overcome with good. You don't use martial arts on someone, so to speak. You don't hurt a person. Well, yes, we live in a world full of sin, and we have the authority, rights to defend ourselves and to protect ourselves. That's why we have first responders. My point being is, how does Jesus rule? He gave up his life. And when he did, he was given all dominion. Another passage. We are told in the text here that there was the true light, right? Back to John chapter 1. The true light which, coming into the world, as Jesus came into the world, enlightens every man. And we're like, paradigm shift. I thought that God was going to bring this new kingdom and we're going to crush all others and our kingdom is going to be the, the kingdom. Just like USA, USA. No, this, Jerusalem, right? Hurrah for Jerusalem. But how? By defeating all their enemies the way every other country and nation and king has ever done of all human history? Mm -mm. No. Not this anointed one. Not this anointed kingdom. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, right, through Jesus, and the world did not know him. Why? The world did not know him because the world does things in its own way, not the way that he would do things, the way of the Father's will. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the significance of Jesus being the incarnate Christ. It is a fundamental picture to the gospel message. It is the reason why we, we can come and worship our God and we can... Some people say, well, you know, can you worship Jesus, right? That's a question among brethren that we have, right? Is that okay to do? Well, did some, some debate, and some will say, well, look at Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verse 59, when he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, right? Things of that nature. But who is Jesus? He may not be the Father, but who is he? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Who bowed down and worshiped Jesus on various occasions? Well, of course, Jesus is like, worship the Father, right? That's, that's why we say don't worship Jesus. The whole point is Jesus was coming in the likeness of men. What do men do? Worship their creator. But now when Jesus is raised at the right hand of God, on his side, all dominion, power, and glory. And guess where Jesus is in the book of Revelation? He's right there with God. And who is everyone worshiping? The Lamb as well as 
what we say is God. What's the true light? What's a tabernacle? The Lamb is its light. So, for whatever you're going to do, just know that this Jesus is God, who came in the likeness of flesh, in the likeness of humankind, and did what no other human could do. And now he paved the way, not only by giving us salvation, but showing us how to actually live life. So the passages like we were looking at this morning in the Bible class that David was talking about on the Sabbath day, that someone was hungry, and the law was, you know, you don't work on the Sabbath. What did they do? They, they quote, unquote, worked. And Jesus says, and they're innocent, guiltless. Why? Because God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Yeah, you're keeping the law, but you know what? There's life at stake. And I made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus gives us this paradigm shift of how to truly live in our walk with him. That's the significance of why Jesus is the Christ and how we can live life to the fullest until this mortality puts on immortality. So I realize that this is real deep stuff that we got into. The simplicity of the message is the scriptures don't prove, the sim it simply reveals the storyline that this God comes in the likeness of man to save man and show man how to live in the image of God. And that's why he is the image of God, the express image of God. And that's why we who are children of God should become express images of God the way God had intended. Now, if you hear... The picture I hope you get is to walk away from this sermon saying, how am I living my life? Does it look like I am an image bearer of God? Because I don't do a great job of it. Even Phil, one of our spiritual leaders of this congregation, admits that he's got to grow. He's got to make changes. I have to every single day. You have to every single day. Every one of us does. But Jesus comes along and says, here's how you do it. Here's how you live life. And if you're not in that kingdom, the anointed kingdom with the anointed one, Jesus invites you. He's not going to try and prove that he's the Christ. You either believe him or you don't. You take him or you leave him. But to those who want to take him as the Christ, those who want to believe him as the anointed king of kings and lord of lords, he's given you a promise if you believe his promise to be true that he will give you everlasting life just as he has been raised from the dead to everlasting life. That's good news offered to you. And so the invitation is yours that you can die with him and raise to walk in newness of life as he was raised to the right hand of God. You can do that. Brethren, if you need prayers, tradition is that we at the end of every service offer it so that if you want our prayers, you have it. Take advantage of the invitation as together we stand and sing the song.